Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hi there, it's Olivia. If you enjoy the conversations we have on this show, then there's another podcast you should check out. It's called The Next Big Idea, and it's produced in partnership with the LinkedIn Podcast Network. Each week, host Rufus Griscom invites you to listen in on a conversation that might just change the way you see the world. You'll get life lessons from award-winning scientists, best-selling authors, inventors, and historians. Folks like Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Gretchen Rubin. Recent episodes have explored how you can have meaningful conversations in a transactional world, all the ways AI is poised to transform education, creativity, and healthcare, and why failure is, paradoxically, the key to success. Follow The Next Big Idea wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to BioEats World. I'm Lauren Richardson, scientist and former senior editor of PLOS Biology. On this podcast, we explore the growing intersection of biology, healthcare, and technology. And when it comes to healthcare, the topic of how expensive it is and what we can do to lower costs is always top of mind. One area with particularly steep costs is the emergency department. These hospital departments can take care of pretty much anything from a cut to a car wreck. But going to an emergency department for something as simple as a cut can result in a high bill for both the patient and the insurer. This is where the urgent care center comes in. Urgent care centers are walk-in clinics focused on caring for minor illnesses and injuries, or in medical speak, low acuity conditions. They are way less expensive than a trip to the emergency department. So funneling these low acuity visits from the emergency department to urgent care centers should result in lower healthcare costs, right? On today's episode, I'm joined by A16Z general partner, Vanita Agrawala and BioDeal team member, Justin Larkin, who are both medical doctors and experts in healthcare to discuss new research examining this key assumption. We discuss the issues with care utilization and care navigation, how urgent care centers impact healthcare costs, and the implications of these results for builders in the digital health space. We talk a lot about emergency department spend in the U.S. as being a big component of the overall healthcare spend, and it really comes down to the volume of visits and the price of those visits. And it's not cheap to have a facility that's attached to a hospital with lots of overhead costs, that has lots of imaging resources, has lots of lab resources, that it has to be open. 24-7 throughout the day, but the hospitals have to charge to make the economics work of running an emergency department. And so when you look at emergency department bills, there's a very large facility fee component, which is substantially higher than what is charged in an urgent care center. You know, on the volume side, the data suggests something like 40 plus percent of visits in the ED could be taken care of in other settings, could be taken care of in urgent cares, could be taken care of in retail centers, in primary care offices. It's like, you know, taking your bike with a flat tire to the NASCAR pit crew to try to solve your problem. You don't need those resources. And so we look at how we want to reduce that spend over time. We really have to impact the volume of visits in the ED and or the unit cost of each of those visits, which is probably a harder lever to try to move. I mean, the emergency department is a huge part of the safety net, for better or for worse. 
in the United States healthcare system. It is the place where you know you can go and you will not be denied care and your medical complaints will be triaged appropriately. I think anybody who's worked in an emergency department will immediately recognize that as an urgent trauma gets wheeled in with 10 people running to figure out what happened, you know, as a result of a motor vehicle accident at the exact same time, somebody is coming in who's had chronic pain for 10 years and is experiencing an exacerbation of that pain symptom. And so that's the contrast. Yes, it's a safety net for both of those patient populations, but you really wonder whether we could have better infrastructure to manage the latter. It used to just be, if you need something looked at right away, you go to the emergency room. But urgent care clinics is something that has really gained popularity over the last 10 years. What's the origin story of urgent care and what's the theory behind how they save money overall in healthcare spending? So the origin story is pretty simple and pretty intuitive in that providers saw that there was an access issue for patients needing to receive care that their primary care providers likely weren't positioned to provide but that was below the needs of an emergency department. And so in the 70s, you started to see these relatively narrowly scoped urgent cares pop up. And then over time, they've both increased dramatically in terms of the number of urgent cares, where today I think there's something like 10,000 urgent care centers across the U.S., but have also expanded the services they offer. So today you can expect that many of them will have imaging resources. Many of them will have the ability to do labs on site. They'll have various levels of providers that can really care for a full spectrum of patients. Ultimately, a total cost of care is a simple equation. It's volume times unit price. It's unequivocal that the unit price of urgent cares is lower. It's something like 10x lower than going to the emergency department. But the question is, do urgent cares also create excess kind of volume that wouldn't have existed otherwise had they not been open? Exactly. It's another way to say that is utilization is not a zero-sum game. So it's not like you just get to take a care episode out of the ED and plop it into the urgent care bucket. What you might do and what this paper set out to ask is, is it possible that maybe you do take a visit out of the ED basket, but is it possible that you create two more in the urgent care bucket or 10 more or some other kind of hidden cost of care differential and utilization differential that might not make the math seem as obvious as it does by intuition? I think that's a perfect segue for digging into the results and methods of the study because they're looking at how many emergency room visits are offset by urgent care and how does that result in an increase or decrease in overall spending. So what's the data set that they're looking at here? The authors of the paper analyze a large national managed care plans claims from 2008 to 2019 the number of ED and urgent care visits that that plan covered for its members during that time are in the many millions. So it is a large data set. And there they subcategorized all the different episodes by the patient zip code, which claims represented an ED visit, which claims represented an urgent care visit. They could look at diagnosis codes associated with those claims to figure out some indication of why the patient was actually seeking healthcare at that time and so on and so forth. I do think this data set, while large, has some notable limitations, not just the fact that it was one plan and one demographic, which just doesn't represent the whole country. But to me, the feature that stood out is that 
the age of this population was quite young. So the median age was 29.9 years. They could exclude patients, for example, who are over 65 and had Medicare coverage. It's largely a white patient population. Only 18% of these patients actually had any pre-existing disability. So we're talking about people who are pretty healthy overall, you know, and so that is a different sort of class of visits and care utilization that we're going to get to see versus some of the chronic disease or very ill patients that come to mind when we think about complex triage. The one other thing that I think is notable about this data set is that a key component of how people utilize healthcare is the benefits design that surrounds their health plan, whether they have high deductibles, whether they have high coinsurance. And that's by definition likely to be more homogeneous in a data set like this, meaning that it's unlikely to be totally representative of other plans that exist out there. And so I think it's a great place to start. It is a robust, large data set, but certainly not without limitations that I think ultimately impact how we can extrapolate and extend this to the broader picture. So this isn't necessarily a perfectly representative slice of data, but it does have features that make it really attractive to study. How are the authors able to plumb this data set and kind of extract the information they need on, you know, what kind of care truly requires a trip to the emergency department versus what could be done at an urgent care center to parse the utilization of each. One of the nice things about these data sets is that they come with quite a bit of detail attached to them, meaning that through different service codes, it's pretty easy to tell, you know, was this visit done in urgent care versus was this done in the ED? Where I would say there's a little bit more creative licenses in defining what is lower acuity or what is necessary to be in the ED. And these authors were building on a large body of research that's been done before. It seems like they used, you know, generally accepted standards of what would be considered lower acuity, which is largely driven by what is the ICD code that's attached to that given visit. And from there, we're able to distinguish the different types of visits. So that's a reasonable way to go. It's a reasonable intuition. It's what they had available to them. I don't think it's perfect at all. So let me give you an example. Let's say you have a patient who comes in with chest pain. Let's say it turns out to be gastric reflux and you decide to treat the patient in the ED with Tums and send them home. This totally happens all the time, right? Unfortunately, what's not coded are the chief complaints that brought patients into the ED. What's coded are the ultimate codes for which against which billing was done. So you do have to put in a billing code when you even order the Tums. Often that'll be associated in the ED with a diagnosis code of reflux. And that might be, I'm not positive based on how everything was coded in this particular data set, but that might be all you have describing that episode. And so now you've characterized the reflux episode as low acuity because yeah, you could have gotten Tums in the urgent care center. But unfortunately, our healthcare system is not really equipped to triage chest pain in any other way. So that kind of nuance is missed a little bit when we over-rely on CPT and diagnosis codes. Right, right. It's almost like hindsight is twenty twenty. Like, you know the outcome, but if you just say, oh, chest pain, like that could be a heart attack or that could be, you know, something super benign. And you're judging the outcome based on what you know happened versus all the possibilities of what could have happened. Totally. And I'm not saying all chest pain should go to the ED. Don't put me on record saying that (laughs) as a cost-conscious physician. And I think there are lots of opportunities actually for innovation to figure out how we manage complaints like that in a better setting than the ED. 
But absolutely, we've kind of taken a biased lens on what actually the patient scenarios going into the episode were. So what are the key metrics that they're looking at in this study? The primary metric is something called the substitution ratio, which is really just the number of urgent care center visits that replace a single ED visit, meaning that as they look at these different zip codes, how many urgent care visits would it take to replace a single, again, low acuity ED visit? And the number they found was 37. So to the earlier discussion we had about, you know, kind of it's not a zero sum game. It's not. What they found is that to prevent one low acuity ED visit, you have to generate an increase of 37 urgent care visits. But it's not causal in the sense that it's not the same patients who were being seen multiple times and therefore had prevented an ED visit in their own care journey. There are lots of reasons why this could happen. Yeah. It's not on a individual level. It's on a population level. And it is worth noting that that is 37 low acuity urgent care center visits associated with a decrease in one lower acuity ED visit. I do wonder if we're missing some part of the picture by actually focusing only on the lower acuity care, even though the intuition is strongest there for this utilization substitution. What if it were the case that having access to an urgent care center could actually decrease high acuity ED visits? We don't actually get to know in the way that they've conducted their primary analysis. That brings up a super interesting point, which when you think about preventable ED utilization, it isn't just about keeping the people with upper respiratory infections or rashes out of the ED. The holy grail of reducing ED utilization is really finding those patients that have heart failure or that have COPD or have asthma. And if they had access to lower acuity treatment settings, could get to the point where they don't have exacerbations of those conditions, which require them to eventually end up in the ED. And so that is certainly beyond the scope of this paper, but I think is an important question as we ponder what is the ultimate opportunity for reducing ED utilization. It really is, I think, keeping people out of health states that require that extreme kind of level of care that's provided in the ED. And the example of an asthma patient is great, right? Because that's a really common one. And sometimes people don't know how to use inhalers, nebulizers, and the lack of basic education is what brings them into the ED. And what if you had a non-ED setting where you could be educating the patient about those kinds of things on a higher touch way? Could you have prevented a high acuity ED visit, which resulted in inpatient admission and or intubation of a patient. On the flip side, that example begs the question, are urgent care centers the right place to do that kind of thing? And the authors note that limitation too, which is that most of us would think that the best place to do that is a primary care office or some other place where you develop a longitudinal relationship with a patient. And so it does put urgent care centers in this kind of awkward place of not being best for high acuity and also not really being best for a lot of low acuity symptoms. And that's something else that we don't get a chance to look at. We don't get a chance to see if urgent care utilization actually kind of warps or even undermines primary care utilization, which could be another downside of their existence, actually. So we've got these 37 low acuity urgent care visits for one low acuity ED visit. How does this change in usage impact costs? Yeah, the cost of an ED visit is roughly 10x what it is to go see an urgent care provider for the same kind of chief complaint. And so you're still going to see a pretty sizable increase in total cost of care based on that ratio. That it's roughly, you know, a 6,000 
$327 increase in urgent care center costs relative to a $1,646 lower QDED visit reduction based on this analysis and increase in the total spend. One of the, I think, important limitations of this paper, however, is that we don't get line of sight into the total cost of care. So we don't see if primary care visits also went down or primary care visits also went up, or if there are other types of utilization that help to offset that overall cost increase. But based on the scope of this paper, we do see a general increase in cost based on the substitution ratio that they found. Yeah. And they just look at how total cost of low acuity care across both the ED and urgent care changed over this time period, during which you know we tend to have the view that, wow, healthcare got infused with technology and more places were using EHRs and you know, maybe we're doing a better job <laughs> managing low acuity care. But guess what happened? Over the course of 2010 to 2019, the combined cost of lower acuity visits to EDs and urgent care centers rose by 64%, which is kind of the motivating factor for the paper to be done in the first place, which is that we have a real problem. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. our cost of care in triaging what should be low acuity complaints is enormous and rising rapidly out of proportion to disease prevalence increase, out of proportion to population increase, just wildly out of proportion to what you'd expect to be happening in a system that is improving in its efficiency and ability to triage. So the findings of this paper kind of go against the theory of urgent care, which is that it will lower healthcare spend. And it is also highlighting this trend that patients want to see doctors more often. They want to have more access. So if urgent care doesn't work to decrease those costs, What are some other options for expanding care, but not necessarily increasing costs? It's not at all shocking to me that simply opening up urgent cares doesn't reduce cost of care. Mm -hmm. I don't think that necessarily solves really the full suite of problems to really move the needle on total cost of care. And so for me, what it highlights is the importance of having resources for patients that help them to navigate the various options that they have at hand that help them quarterback, what does their coverage look like? What are the options that are available to them that solve both the convenience need, that solve kind of those core patient experience needs? And then importantly, having benefit structures that align incentives for patients to utilize the resources that solve their needs in a meaningful, convenient, patient-friendly way, but at the same time, aren't the highest cost version that can solve that. So for me, it's not necessarily you know a negative signal that we see in the results of this paper, but just highlighting the need for a more comprehensive approach to moving the needle for total cost of care. Yeah, and I think the, the authors propose some really interesting policy implications of their work. And they say that urgent care centers may still be really, you know, valuable, quote, when combined with other interventions to assist patients in choosing care venues. And so that suggests that, hey, maybe we built up a whole bunch of urgent care centers on this strong intuition that obviously they're gonna avert expensive ED visits, but really. We have to think about all the same triage and care navigation that health systems had already started to do for ED visit avoidance. But we haven't really done much to actually inform patients about when an urgent care center is the right place to go. What can be done there? What can be done at home? What should be done over telemedicine with your primary care doctor on Monday? And so it's kind of, I think, very parallel to the rise of care navigation that we're seeing in the digital health world. And it's no surprise that care navigation needs to extend to urgent care centers as well. 
I'd like to follow up, Vanita, on your point about like the policy implications, because on Journal Club, you know, we're usually talking about new discoveries made in the lab and how you take a discovery and turn it into a product. You know, how does a paper like this, how does that actually influence policy and kind of who is influenced by this paper? I think this paper is extraordinary in kind of highlighting a set of analyses that any digital health vendor, as well as any in-person healthcare provider or plan needs to think about before creating new care options. Because new care options seem straightforward from the outside. It seems like, well, I'm just introducing another more frictionless, easier to access care venue. Well, congratulations, but maybe you've increased utilization, right? In ways that you didn't predict. And so I think the framework of this paper is actually so, so applicable to this large cohort of digital health vendors that we're seeing. And if those groups don't think carefully about their kind of online to offline transition and how they make that happen, are they going to transition to an urgent care center when they need in-person care? Are they going to transition to an ED? Are they going to forge really tight relationships with primary care physicians who can get a patient seen when they reach that point where the digital health vendor can no longer take care of the patient, that transition is not something to kind of have as an afterthought. That, to me, that's what this paper says, right? Those transitions are expensive, hard to predict, and complex navigation is required to get it right. Yeah, I think those that are in position to be most impacted by this paper are those that ultimately hold risk for patients. So that can be health plans, it can be employers, it can be more and more of these payviders that we see. But to Vanita's point, it really is a thinking about how do we move the needle on these transitions of care? And that can be something that happens by having care navigation services. That can be something that comes through more effective communication to their members and patients about what the options are. It could be something that's ultimately impacted by how benefits are structured. So there are lots of different potential levers and approaches, but at the end of the day, we're seeing a more diverse group of people take on risk for patients. So there are a lot of folks that I think can benefit from this broader mentality. Yeah, and no healthcare journal club would be complete without mention of value-based care. And so to Justin's point on taking on risk, most such agreements have taken place in the outpatient setting and they have not fully included so-called unscheduled sites of care, including emergency departments. And often ED utilization and or urgent care utilization is a metric in a value-based care contract where you know, primary care physician might get credit for decreasing ED utilization. But what actually goes down in the ED, those providers, I think, are not yet included in most value-based care contracts. And again, the 64% increase that we saw in ED and urgent care spend from 2010 to 2019 was actually primarily driven by increases in the per-episode cost of care, not even largely driven by increase in number of visits. So we have to ask, what's going on? Are doctors ordering more? Are there billing issues where the rates of care and the cost charged by provider centers has been fixed at kind of unfairly high levels? And so that creates a whole nother set of policy implications for how do you regulate cost of care at urgent care and ED visits? How do you incentivize lower care utilization within a given ED episode or urgent care episode and kind of a whole set of, I think, ramifications when you start looking at how do you bring low acuity urgent care into the fold of value-based care models. 
Right. It's not just where the patient goes. It's how the patient's treated when they're there. Yeah. And what incentives exist for the providers at that location. Okay. With that, Justin, Vanita, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. This was a great conversation. Thanks so much for having us. And thanks to the authors of this paper for providing such great fodder for discussion. Thanks, Lauren. Great to join. And that's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with the help of the A16Z bio team, Justin Golden and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email BioEatsWorld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts.